Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. Today, we're diving into conformal coding best practices. With the explosion of Internet of Things, IoT, the electrification of vehicles, and the miniaturization of circuit assemblies and associated components, many of which are operating in harsh environments, the need for conformal coding has never been greater. Need to conformal coat your assemblies? Where does one start? What materials should one use? Should it be applied in-house or through a contract coding house? What are the best practices for material selection, application, inspection, thickness? So many questions. To answer these and other questions, I invited a conformal coding expert to speak with me and you and hopefully shed some light on this subject. My guest today is David Greenman. David began his career in the conformal coding business working at Concoat, first distributing Humaseal products and eventually manufacturing them under license for Europe, the Middle East, India, and Africa. After 25 years of distributing then manufacturing Humaseal products under license, Chase Corp, which owns Humaseal, purchased Concoat, where David now serves as director of Humaseal UK, Europe, and India, and where he's also responsible for corporate responsibility as well as supporting Humaseal sales and technical teams. Earlier in David's career, he qualified as a radio TV electronics engineer, became a member of the Society of Radio and Electronics Technicians that was eventually absorbed into the Institution of Engineering and Technology, uh, and he's still a member there. David is a member of numerous British standards committees for conformal coatings and resins beginning in the mid-1980s, and as a matter of fact, he's now chairman of one. He is also on an IEC committee as the UK specialist on conformal coatings. David has also recently been elected as chairman of the newly formed United Electronic Coating Association. So, let's dive into coating, shall we? Without any further ado, I'd like to welcome David Greenman to the show. Hey, David. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for agreeing to be my guest today. Or actually, I think it's a little bit more voluntold, right? Uh, yeah. Someone said, hey, was, talk um, to this guy. No, no, but I, I, I do appreciate it. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, this is not a commercial show, but when I think of conformal coding, you know, when I think of colas, I think of Coca-Cola, right? When I think of conformal coating, Humaseal just kind of drops into my head as the, you know, the placeholder for for the for the product, um, not to endorse or not endorse a brand, but it's it's to me at least from my vantage point, it seems to be kind of the the Coca Cola of uh, of conformal coating products. Um, I'm sure I'm sure you won't argue with that statement, right? Absolutely not. Uh, we've been around for over sixty years now in the conformal coating market. Humaseal started out um, in the US and is now a global company with manufacturing sites um, within Europe and within India. And we have our remaining um, uh, manufacturing licensee uh, in Japan. So we truly are global now, which is, we've come a long way in 60 years. Yes, yes. And that's uh, 60 years in the electronics world. That's like 6 million years. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of measured in dog years. Um, you, in your bio, I had mentioned that uh, you were a, a TV engineer you know, back, back in the day. And, and I think you're, you're still, obviously, you're, you're still experienced in that, although TVs have changed a lot. I, I believe the, uh, some of the earliest conformal coatings, and I'll, I'll put air quotes around conformal coating, was on old television sets because they tended to um, cover their their boards with rosin flux and just not clean it. That seemed to be kind of the you know, let's call it the poor man's conformal coating. Does that ring any bells? It does, and you can actually go back before then to uh, WW two when they were sh putting uh, radio systems into planes and giving it to the troops. And, and shipping it out to the Far East. 
and to protect it against the environment it was going into, the high humidity, they used a product called shellac, which comes from the shellac beetle. I took and, a wood shop in high school and we shellacked a yeah. lot of projects. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was uh, what I, I think of as the original conformal coating. But no, you're quite right. I remember back in the 60s um, working on a um, radiogram, we called them in those days, and uh, we should come back from the Far East for a person that had been working there. And believe it or not, it was covered in shellac. Amazing. Uh, I wonder if the dielectric properties of shellac are as good as modern conformal <laughs> coating. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Well, it worked. Uh, and, and I don't think, I'm not convinced they left the rosin flux on the, on the board uh, for any other purpose than they just didn't want to remove it. Um, but I, re I remember taking things apart when I was a kid. I was, I've said this on the show before. I used to get in a lot of trouble with my parents because I was very curious how things work. So I took things apart. I was not at all curious of how to put it back together. Um, so my parents would come home from work and various appliances would be in various stages of, of um, disassembly. Uh, but I, it, it's just as well I, I was lucky, I guess, as a kid because I did take apart some televisions. And back in the days of CRTs, they held mm -hmm. a charge, right? You, you, could, oh, yes. you could be killed off a, a junkyard TV back then. Yeah. Even you could get a rather nice, nasty burn. Yeah, uh, I yeah. It would kill you, but uh, yeah. All right, um, let's, let's, know, start anyway, yeah. let's start at the beginning. Uh, most of my audience, overwhelmingly, most of my audience is, is in the EMS space, as we are. Some aren't. So there are, I have some uh, subscribers that kind of orbit around uh, our sun, but not quite close enough. Um, so let's just not assume anything. Let's start with a beginner's mindset. Uh, what is conformal coating? And well, let's just start with that basic question. What is conformal coating? Okay, well, basically it's a thin polymer film that conforms to the profile of a printed circuit assembly. It protects it uh, from the envir operational environment. So it filters out contaminants protects against dendrites, maintains surface insulator resistance, and in recent work, it reduces and con can control tin whiskers. So uh, when we talk about can... dendrites, just to, yeah, we just lost a few people. So d uh, my job is to bring everyone up to speed. So dendrites would be basically electrochemical migration, which is metal crystals growing on the board. Um, Absolutely. And uh, there were some other benefits as well. Um, basically keeping keeping nasty stuff off the board, right? Yeah, that's it. The thing to remember is a conformal coating, and it doesn't matter what the resin base is, it doesn't matter where it comes from, um, moisture permeates in and out of the, of the coating. So it's basically acting as a filter. And if you look at a decent uh, technical data sheet, you'll find that it states uh, insulation resistance, that's normally done at uh, 25 degrees Celsius, 50% relative humidity, and will also state moisture resistance, which is 85, 85. So that is a fully saturated coating. And you'll notice that there's a delta between the two. Yeah. And that's primarily the lowest insulation resistance you will see with that coating. So the design engineer can then look at that and say, right, well, that's not going to affect my circuit. Or if he has a low voltage um, sensor of some description, it may or may not. So at least he's got that option. Right. So just to put a bow on on the on the uh, rudimentary part of our conversation, uh, it's a protective layer, kind of a raincoat, so to speak, um, yep. over the board on the surface of the board to protect it okay. from the, uh, the harsh, cruel world that we seem to be throwing assemblies into, uh, particularly these days. When I think of conformal coating, and as you just confirmed, I think of it as a protective barrier to keep yeah. bad stuff out. There are other advantages to conformal coating um, in addition to just that. Can you, or are there, maybe I shouldn't be so presumptuous, um, are there other advantages to conformal coating other than just simply uh, to avoid water spills and, and dust and things like that? Well, one of, I think one of the biggest um, benefit and especially in today's marketplace um, 
with the ever-increasing packing density and the reduction in conductor spacing, is that actually a conformal coating will allow you to reduce your conductor spacing by up to 80%. And that's very relevant in, uh, say, high-voltage circuitry, etc. And uh, it's one of the benefits that's been around, you know, from, from day one. Uh, the other things, of course, it can it can help you help protect the components from vibration. Uh, it protects against uh, a certain amount of condensation. And also incoming atmosphere. Uh, one of the interesting things I read recently is that a major uh, computer mainframe manufacturer that's been putting uh, units out into India, etc., in air-conditioned rooms have started to conformly coat. Whereas in the past, they wouldn't, primarily because of the sulfur in the polluted air that comes into those um, major computer rooms. And that was a big problem um, in LED uh, lighting uh, because of, a, I think they use a silver backing material and, yep. and the sulfur in the air and the silver created uh, all sorts of uh, nasty growths on the board and, and rather quick failures, if I recall. Yeah, I, I did read that one as well. Yeah. Um, so walk me through. There are different types of conformal coating materials. Uh, it's not one. It's not shellac for everybody anymore. Those days are gone. <laughs> uh, walk me through the different types of, of materials. Let's start by identifying them, and then we can kind of dive into the, the differences between those. So you should be able to see on the screen now um, the major resin bases that uh, are utilized to make conformal coatings. We start and, and go ahead and walk, walk through them as well, because some, some of my audience listen to the show and some watch the show. So uh, let's okay. talk in, uh, for the benefit of those who are not seen. So just explain yeah. what we're uh, seeing on the screen. Okay, so we have five different um, uh, icons, each one covering a resin base. We start with synthetic rubber, and that's a, a development over the last 20 years, but it's proving to be quite a, a, a robust and um, excellent base for a conformal coating. And in fact, it has one of the best um, moisture permeabilities, or should I say the least moisture permeability um, of the whole range. Next, we have UV curable. Uh, these have came around in about uh, in, in the early 20s, 20, 20,000, and are 100% solids, uh, polyacrylics, and they cure with UV uh, light of various um, wavelengths. And we'll cover a bit more of that later on in this chat. Then we come on to the what we call the classics. We've got the acrylics, which um, are one of the uh, best classic moisture protection materials. It um, is used extensively, has been used extensively by the military and is a good general purpose base for a conformal coating. Then we have urethanes, uh, polyurethanes. If you need a bit more chemical protection or sort protection you get, then you get with the acrylics. Urethanes are the ones that were, were then selected. Finally, we have the silicons. Silicons have been around for some time. Uh, they are primarily for high temperature operation, anything 200 and above. Uh, but they are now being slowly superseded by the UV curables, which we can take up to 150 plus degrees Celsius continue operating temperature. Just to give you an idea on the permeability. Okay, so uh, this graph shows you how we rank the resin bases by vapor permeability. And it's based on an ASTM E398 test, which is a, a known test. And as you can see from the graph, the degree of moisture permeability decreases as you go down the graph. So believe it or not, the worst 
product for vapor permeability is the silicons, followed by the polyurethanes, the acrylics, two-part epoxies, but then at the bottom, giving the best results, are the synthetic rubber and the UV coatings. And this is a test we did um, a few years ago, which, uh, to be honest, even amazed us that the silicons gave the, uh, the worst performance. Now, when you say synthetic rubber, um, when I think of, you know, from my 30,000-foot press box view, when I look at conformal coating materials, I think of acrylics, silicons, um, um, other, other types of materials. I've never heard of, of synthetic rubbers before. Are, are they, is that synthetic rubber product known by another classification? Or, uh, or are they called synthetic no, rubber? Under, under IPC CC830, it is now listed as synthetic rubber, SR. And, SR, okay. And um, yes, it's, ba it's a resin that is more uh, flexible. It, and, and, and more recent ones have higher temperature range. Again, we can go up to 150 degrees Celsius. So we talked about the different types of, of materials uh, and which are better and, and yeah. have, have different attributes, I should say. Are there a specific application-based or maybe industry-based conformal coating materials? In other words, does the LED industry gravitate toward one type of product? Does the auto industry gravitate toward another type of product or material? I think it, before we, if, if I may, before we move on to that, um, I know there will be certain suppliers out there will say, well, what's missing? And what's missing is... Someone's out there that goes, you never said our stuff, right? <laughs> so, as this is non-commercial... Let's throw perylene out there. Perylene is missing because that is, a, is missing. That is um, a a material and b a whole application process, right? It's yeah. it's very oh, different. Yeah. So perylene, the perylene guys are going, hey, what about us? So let's <laughs> identify them. What I used to call the surface modifiers, which are now being called by IPC CC eight thirty ultra thin conformal coatings. These are the fluorocarbon nano coatings that are based on the water repellent properties of the lotus leaf, where everything boils up, where water boils up and then rolls off. Um, in, the, in the European standards at the moment, uh, they're not recognized, but hopefully in the next few years, uh, we will. Um, they are different to conventional conformal coatings. They go down at very thin levels, even even to a certain degree, uh, nearly as thin as, as perylene. And uh, it's going to be interesting to watch them progress over the next years. They have good water repellent properties, but we, we need to see the other properties that we expect a conformal coating to have and how they perform. But yeah, it, I, I, did, I would mention them in passing. Yeah, when I, when I, I've been to a number of conferences where nano coatings are promoted and, and they're not quite in this, you know, under the same banner as conformal coatings. They, they don't, at least at the moment, they don't seem to even advertise some of the other attributes of conformal coating uh, outside of water repellent, moisture repellent. Uh, but I've seen them in, in stencils. Uh, people will nanocoat the, their stencils uh, for better release, uh, solder paste release, and for easier cleaning and things like that. I, I the word nano coating has been exploited beyond beyond uh, a reasonable factor. Uh, when I go to the auto store and buy car wax, you know, they all says with nano coating, and and you know, who knows if that's actually truly technically nano coating? But um, the the word has kind of morphed into the consumer world as well, um, and it's being applied in all sorts of. Uh, creative ways let's let's say absolutely but it is yeah. interesting to see yeah, uh, boys have got hold of it <laughs> yeah yeah right exactly all of a sudden it's turtle wax with with nano coating um okay. so you know the original question and then we got off track yeah. a little bit was are there application or industries uh favorites in terms of conformal coating materials does the auto industry gravitate toward yeah. a certain type of of material does the led market or other markets gravitate toward others 
Well, the thing, the thing with, let's start with LED applications. Um, to start with, you need a clear, if you're going to coat over the LEDs, you need a clear conformal coating that will remain clear throughout its life. So the first thing you're going to look at is the base resin. Will it age? Will it change color with temperature and age? So basically that eliminates the polyurethanes straight out the window because they age and they discolor. Also, not real good to, when you're trying to get light through it. Quite. That's the whole point. And um, the other thing you have to ensure is that there's no UV tracer. You may know that in uh, good quality conformal coatings, they all contain a UV tracer that fluorescizes under long wave UV light for inspection purposes, for some application purposes. But again, that product, as it ages, it loses its fluorescence, but it also can change color. It can become a light straw color, which again is going to upset your, your light permeability of your, your coating for LED um, applications. Um, moving on from LEDs, looking at automotive, Automotive are usually high volume, um, so the UV curing materials are very good for that, and they are now overtaking the traditional solvent-based materials. And uh, we have a number of, of automotive manufacturers that are now using our UV curables, uh, even from the ones that we developed back in 2004, 2005. Uh, and released in 2005, uh, they're still there and they're still doing the job. Industrial controls, uh, that normally depends on the end environment that the, that the product is going into and the coating um, is selected accordingly. But again, we're going to discuss a bit more of that later. White goods, again, it can be high volume. So predominantly in the UV, in the white goods market, we're, we're selling the UV product. And, uh, and when you say white goods, um, explain what that is. Uh, okay, fine. Um, white goods. So it's your washing machines, your tumbler dryers, your dishwashers, your toasters, your kettles, and even some of the more advanced mixing systems. They've all got control boards inside that obviously could be, especially in your washing machines and your, your dryers, could be exposed to high humidity, uh, to high temperatures, etc. And in fact, there is a, for one of the major American uh, white goods manufacturers, I, I won't mention names, um, they have a bleach test, which is basically you coat a board, put it in a pressure cooker and boil it for a few hours. <laughs> Effectively, not quite exactly the same as that. So it sounds um, like the... Uh the appliance manufacturer is using an appliance themselves, <laughs> right? We come from the cleaning world. You know, I, I, I'm in the cleaning business and, yeah, you know, our, our, you know, to some degree, not so much anymore because boards have become so difficult to clean now. But, you know, yeah. one of our competitors was, you know, dishwasher, you know, residential dishwasher, yeah. you know, back in the day. Um, so there are industry specifics. They all have their favorite and they all have their, the one that works best uh, for their for their application and it sounds like a lot has to do with the design of the board and the and the environment in which those boards are going to um, perform absolutely um, absolutely so if one was to choose to apply conformal coating and we'll get into you know, what's driving the conformal coating business explosion uh shortly mm -hmm. let's say okay I, I need to conformal coat um and i'm going to I'm going to conformal coat in-house. I'm not going to send it out to, to get done. I'm just going to just kind of bite the bullet and do it. Uh, what type of equipment, um, manufacturing environment, um, safety concerns, and all that would, would I need to at least consider based upon whatever choice of material I choose? Well, let, let's, let's start at the beginning and look at the most basic way of applying a conformal coating. And that is by hand brushing. It's not used much these days, uh, normally for, for prototyping. But it should be done in an extracted cabinet, preferably with some long wave UV light, 
to activate the UV tracer we talked about earlier. Um, so the operator can see where the coating is going. Uh, and more importantly, where it shouldn't go if it's uh, if he's a bit cack-handed. Um, and of course, if he's using a solvent-based material, the extraction system needs to be explosion-proof. Um, it's very important that there's an extraction system because without an extraction system, whatever the product, the operator would have to wear a full face mask, preferably air-fed. Um, the, also, the operator should be wearing gloves when handling any product. So that's, that's the sort of start point. The next stage would be hand spraying. Uh, using an extracted spray booth, uh, preferably with a, a turntable to be able to rotate the board through 90 degrees, because the best method with hand spraying is to give it a, a, a covering, turn it through 90 and repeat that four times. You build that up. And if it's a solvent based material, you will repeat that two or three times, depending on the product to get the required thickness and coverage and especially with modern day uh, surface mount where we'll come on to that later but edge coverage is 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 becoming a, a problem um, so from hand spraying again it should it preferably have a, a uv light and obviously extraction but all of that should be explosion proof when using solvent based next uh, a method that was used quite a lot in the 80s and 90s is dip coating controlled dip coating with a dip coating machine uh, it is still used today but often for horizontal dipping where there are components that are difficult to mask or the um, selective coating system cannot make its way through um, the array of, of components and dip coating um, it should be a purpose-built system, have its facilities for extraction and a controlled immersion and withdrawal speed. And that's the, that is the important thing with dip coating. But you can also have inline systems um, and, with, and some of them will have built-in curing. So uh, that's, it's not, as I say, it's normally very specialist these days. It's not as relevant as it was in the 1980s and 90s. And finally, of course, we have the robotic selective film stroke spray coating systems. This eliminates masking, uh, but obviously still needs extraction. But they are now becoming very, very popular, um, even with the military that originally discounted them because they felt that it put the coating down too thick. Whereas now with today's components and packing densities, edge coverage is the big thing. Okay, so I, I think that, that covers the, the application methods um, and what's, uh, what's used to be used and what's used today. Um, I, I would imagine that some of the decision criteria for application method uh, is based upon the types of... Uh, populated components that are on the assembly. For example, uh, if one has a BGA, they're probably not going to brush on the formal coating because I can see an advantage of at least hand spraying because you can get kind of an, on, on a 45 degree angle and, and help yeah. you know, push the, the material underneath the, you know, uh, underneath the BGA. Um, and other uh, low profile you know, QFNs, things like that probably mm -hmm don't lend themselves to hand brushing a whole lot. But I'll tell oh, you, I have, I, have to be, I have to be candid when you said um, certain solvent-based ones that have to have explosion-proof cabinets and, you know, basically PPE, <laughs> you know, uh, you kind of just talked me into sending it out to a contract coder. You know, that's, <laughs> a, that's, um, it, it, that's a lot of safety stuff uh, going on. And we do, in, in my day job, you know, we have relationships with contract coating companies um, because you know best practices is generally to clean before you coat so yeah. uh, we support quite a few uh, coders and I've I've visited them over the years and um, 
you know, it's funny, I'll walk into their place and, and overwhelmed by a smell and, and I'm like, don't you smell that? And they go, smell what? <laughs> I think they're just too, too used to it, right? Uh, but um, definitely if, if one is going to uh, embrace the idea of conformal coating uh, in-house, they really have to go in eyes open because it's not just one more standard process. It really is a specialty. Uh, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made uh, and, and equipment to buy and safety protocols to follow. And, and that involves a team of people from your company to sign off on that. So, um, you know, that's, that's why I, I, I'm happy that you're with me today because it, it is a, a growing segment within our, yeah. our uh, EMS space. And um, you kind of have to know what you're doing up front in so many regards to make it successful, not just successful from a coding standpoint that it will provide adequate protection of your product, but successful from a implementation standpoint uh, as well. Absolutely. So as on the subject of ensuring success, um, if I came to you or if anyone came to you saying, Hey, uh, David, we, we need to conformal coat. Um, you would probably, I don't know enough to tell you what you need to know because I don't know what I don't know. So you're the expert. So I, I would imagine you would turn around and say, okay, Mike. And then you'd, you'd list a series of questions so that you can drive me or steer me toward the most appropriate solution. What types of questions do you ask your okay, well, prospective customers? Well, we'll, we'll start, we'll always start with is what is the operating environment of the PCA? Um, is there chemi chemical contamination? What is the operating temperature range? What is the potential thermal cycling requirements? Um, the preferred application and curing method? And to a certain degree, the volume to be produced. You know, as we were saying earlier that, um, you know, a client getting into conformal coding, he's got to consider, there's a lot of upfront costs, as you indicated. And what he's got to consider is, is he prepared to make the investment and will long-term he have a sufficient boards to conformally coat for a return on that investment. Uh, if not, go to an EMS, go to somebody that's experienced in, in, in applying the coating. Um, so the volume to be produced is, is one thing and that, that helps us um, and, and also, you know, his, his application method, his preferred application method, that helps us select the best coating. So you start with the environment, you start with the temperature, you start with the application um, and the volume, um, but also something which I'm sure you'll, you will like is, are the boards going to be cleaned before coating? 20 years ago, I, I, when I was doing presentations, I had a slide that said, no clean is no option when conformally coating. And in those days, it wasn't an option. And the military still clean before coating. I've looked at, in my presentations, I make the same, obviously I make the same point. It benefits <laughs> me to do that. But, it, but even though it benefits me to uh, promote cleaning, uh, it, it really needs to be cleaned. And yeah. it's just like, um, you know, back many, many years ago uh, here in, in North America, we had a, a company that painted cars, and uh, the company was called Earl Scheib. Earl Scheib was the owner, and he was famous for his radio spots. And he'd say, I'm Earl Scheib, and I'll paint any car for $29.95. Right? $29.95. How do you paint an entire car for $29.95? Well, you bring it in, you don't wash it, you don't prep it, there's no surface prep, you just paint it, and if you don't like the color, in six months the paint will peel off anyway, and you can do it again. Um, yeah. so, um, surface prep is so important when it comes to paint, when it comes to yeah. any kind of adhesion process, surface energy, you know, has yeah. to be right. And, uh, th this gives me a good segue for an anecdote. Um, there, uh, I was hired as an expert witness, um, several years ago, uh, in a civil litigation matter where a contract, an OEM hired a, a contract manufacturer to... Uh, assemble boards, and these boards were going to be uh, potted, not coated, but it was a similar uh, concept, potted. And 
um, placed into the ground and uh, without a power source. So these boards were running off a battery, a 10-year battery. The boards would send a radio signal up to a nearby receiver, which was connected to a traditional power source. And um, after about three months, the board started failing. The product failed because the battery was drained. And, and they couldn't figure out why the battery was drained. Well, they had a number of issues. They had calf, which has nothing to do with cleaning. They had um, dendritic growth and parasitic leakage. Uh, and it, uh, when we dug into the details of how they manufactured the product, um, they, uh, they washed the boards in, a, in an inline cleaner without a chemical additive because um, they had water-soluble flux, which meant all the polar... Uh, all, all the non-polar residue species from all the other um, processes in assembly were left on the assembly. So they had dirty boards, uh, and, and then they didn't bake out the boards at all, zero bake out, uh, and they potted them, and they thought, well, they're potted, so they're protected. Well, what they did is they created this sarcophagus, like King Tut was buried in a coffin with a lot of his possessions. This board was buried... In a, in a silicon sarcophagus with all of its possessions. And the possessions were moisture, conductive corrosive residues, all this stuff. And guess what happened? There, there was enough moisture within the layers of the board to create the uh, catalyst effect for electrochemical migration. And, and there was enough moisture to react with the corrosive residues and conductive residues to create corrosion. So... The, the batteries drained because of parasitic leakage and other factors, dendritic growth and calf. And, and they thought they were fine because they coated the board. They would have mm -hmm. been better in that case, or, or potted the board, but they would have been better in that case not potting the board because then at least the moisture had a, would have a chance to outgas. So you, know, you have to be careful that you're not just protecting what goes, what's around the board. You're protecting, you're, you're, you're going to encapsulate everything, all the sins of the process, if you don't yep. prep it properly. Uh, I'm not saying everyone should clean. What I'm, what I'm saying is you're going to trap in and you're going to trap out. You, and I think people don't consider the former. They consider Absolutely. the latter, right? Yeah. They, they don't understand that conformal coatings and potting compounds trap contaminants underneath. That's right. And um, as you've described... And that can lead to failures. And, uh, you know, yeah, we've had to get used to no clean. Uh, and, you know, but if you're running no clean, as I think we're going to talk about later, uh, you've got to control your process. Yeah. It, um, otherwise, no, you will be trapping rubbish underneath your coating. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we talked about what questions you would ask a potential customer, which are great questions. What types of questions... And I don't want, you know, I'm not trying to steer this into a partisan discussion. You know, we don't want to make this a, a commercial. But in, in, in a generic sense, what types of questions should I be asking potential suppliers? Okay. So very similar to the previous answer. Um, the things you should be asking is, will the conformal coating protect my boards, boards against the operating environment? So you would have to describe that operating environment. Um, are there any limitations in the application method? They need to look at the application method and the coating has to match that application method. And also curing. How do they want to cure the board? Uh, how long are they prepared to wait? Again, it comes down to throughput, to volume. And also, depending on the the manufacturing process um, are they going to clean the boards do they have and the questions they should ask is do i have to clean my boards before putting your coating on and then we would describe uh you know understand what they're leaving on there what their process is and, and maybe make some recommendations and the final thing which a lot of people forget is is there a minimum requirement for the surface energy of the board before conformal coating because that is going to affect wetting, it's going to affect adhesion, and as um, I think I'll be, we talk about later, uh, we, we look for greater than 38 dyne centimetres of surface energy on a board. And that's on the 
that's after it's been right through the process. All the different chemical processes the board go through before it gets to the conformal coding stage. Uh, and that's what they've got to watch out for. And that's the sort of questions I would expect a client to ask. Excellent. In a, we're going to take you in a time machine now, David. In a, 28, uh, in a 2018 interview um, with one of your colleagues, it, it wasn't yourself, uh, we'll get into one that, that you were in in a moment. He stated that miniaturization of components has made them increasingly more difficult to coat. Now, that was 2018. They've just gotten smaller since then, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you agree with that statement? Has miniaturization made it more difficult to coat? And if so, what's being done at coating companies to to address and or mitigate this challenge of, of the ever-decreasing uh, footprint of uh, components? Okay, um, if, 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 you go, if you go way back before then, when we had uh, through-hole technology, axial components, round components. When we had actually components we could see with our eyes. We could see with our eyes, yeah. absolutely. Um, easy to cope, no problems at all. And as we got into surface mount, and as it's uh, developed and the components got smaller and smaller, Tighter, tighter packing densities, narrower track, track spacing. And the big thing is the shape of the capacitors and the resistors these days. They're square. They have sharp edges. And one of the big things people don't look at when they're conformally coating is the sharp edge coverage. I would imagine it would be thicker on the surface and thinner on the on the sharp edge, the, right? Edge. Because the stuff wants to wet out. <laughs> it gets That's thinner. It. Yeah. It, it's got to define, you know, it, it's gravity pulls mm -hmm. it away. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, uh, what is happening now, uh, we are seeing um, with some some companies that are not applying the correct the coating correctly, putting it down too thin or, or not or processing it too quickly. They're getting hardly any coverage on those on those sharp edges. Then what you can get, you can actually get a dendrite that grows across from one component to the other. If you've got a contaminant on the surface, if you've got a, a positive and negative opposite each other, this is what we're seeing. So we are certainly looking and um, we are now starting to talk about uh, improving sharp edge coverage and how you improve it. And, you know, we're, we'll be talking more about that at the SMTA conference. Uh, Mr. Uh, Chris Brightwell, R&D manager for Humaseal, will be there and we'll be discussing that. One, well, that's one of the things he'll be discussing. With factors, including the implementation of electronics into harsh environments, uh, environmental regulations, um, and uh, sharp edge corners on, on components, as you just mentioned, um, that has driven the need for advancements in conform conformal coating materials. You talked about you know, ways you're addressing the, the sharp edge uh, and things like that. Well, that seems to be creating a challenge for conformal coating companies, particularly the environmental side, because the kind of the, the rule, I live in California, we're a little bit nuts out here, right? So, and, and kind of the rule here is if it tastes good or works well, it's either fattening or illegal, right? <laughs> Just pick your, um, pick your example. So I would think that um, one of the challenges in your world um, is allowing your products or designing products that are robust enough and, and, uh, and, work well and still can get through the door yeah. Uh, yeah. that and so many other challenges let, let, let's kind of focus on the environmental side what are the okay. environmental challenges in the conformal coating materials world and and how do you get around it okay it? so um, you mentioned california i'd just like to to relate one story i heard many years ago that's not true <laughs> I'll, I'll deny it i'll deny it oh oh another story okay go ahead when california was starting to look at uh, solvents and getting rid of solvents in varnish i.e could be conformal coatings mm -hmm. 
And apparently there was a furniture manufacturer that was employing, I think it was 12,000 people somewhere in California. And they were told they had to change from a solvent-based varnish and all their furniture. And I think the number was three months. And they said, look, we, we can't do it in three months. We've got to evaluate the, all, all the water-based stuff. We've got to see if it works and if it, what the lifespan is. And they were said, no, no. Government said, no, you've got to, you've got to, got to change within three months. So they up sticks and moved to Mexico and continued to use solvent-based. So 12,000 jobs were, were lost. Yeah, well, that's, um, in, in the cleaning world, we have, well, throughout the United States, in urban areas mostly that have been known to have air pollution issues, um, we have uh, AQMD, which is a, a government agency, Air Quality Management District. I think it's, I think it's under the EPA. Um, and in some areas, like Southern California, which has historically been known to have bad uh, air quality, we have the South Coast Air Quality Management District. So basically, uh, they, they come to work, they have a calculator on their desk with only three buttons on it, only three. Divide by two equals. I'm convinced of this. Because the VOC regulations for areas in our country that control VOCs is mm -hmm. 50 grams per liter. In Southern California, it's 25. Just yeah. cut it in half. Whether it works or not, that's someone else's problem. But just cut it in half, uh, which is which is good. I mean, I appreciate that. I, I've, I'm a native of California, and I remember, um, you know, when our when we couldn't see our mountains, and and your chest hurt when you breathe in, you know, hard. And you know, those days are largely behind us, thankfully. So between the electrification of vehicles and IoT and miniaturization and all this stuff, have you witnessed an? <laughs> this is probably more of a rhetorical question. Have you witnessed an increase in uh, the demand for conformal coating? I would assume the answer is yes. So let, let me rephrase it to how much of an increase have you seen in the last several years? Well, okay. So let's say over the last five to 10 years, more and more electronics are being put into the vehicles. Every time I buy a new vehicle, there's more and more electronics in there to, to learn about and understand. So yes, we have seen an increase in the use of coatings in the electronics industry. And because it's a high volume industry, most of that has been UV cured coatings because it cures within five seconds under the UV lamp, whether it's LED or whether it's arc, and we can come onto that in a minute. Um, so yes, there is, there is an increase and of course, um, it's got to be high rail. It's it's safety critical. So, and and there are certain manufacturers I know that are now, and you may may know them, that are now looking again at the potential of cleaning aboard uh, to to aid that that the reliable long term reliability and the the high rail safety concerns. Yeah, I think both the conformal coating industry, your your world, and the cleaning industry, my world, are basically riding the same wave you know we're we're next to each other on our surfboards but uh, we're, we're definitely riding a pretty pretty tsunami-esque wave uh it's absolutely for all the same exact reasons right for the exact reasons um you talked about uv coatings a few times uh, mm -hmm. i know that you can have a just a air curable um mm -hmm. coating and you can have a uv coating that cures in i think you said five seconds or something which is pretty impressive other than the time factor. Yeah. Are there advantages to UV curing that um, maybe air curable products don't have? Okay, so uh, UV curables, um, obviously, on a printed circuit board, you're going to have shaded areas. So you have to have a secondary cure mechanism. And that secondary cure mechanism needs to work within 72 hours. And it needs to uh, cure the product that has not seen the UV light to a level where it has the same electrical properties as the fully cured material. Now, if you if you have a large um, QFP and your coating is migrated underneath, it won't see the UV light, but it will cure. 
and it will get the original properties, the same properties as the cured material. Problem is, if you lift that product off, you're going to find it's not as solid mm -hmm. as the material as the material that's in UV. It may be even slightly sticky, but it is still giving you protection. And that is one thing that we find we have to explain to customers um, with regards to to UV code coating. Yeah, I hadn't thought um, about that. That it. Obviously, it only cures when it comes into contact with UV and with the proliferation of bottom terminated components, you know, BGAs, things like that, QFNs. Yeah. The, the, that's not seeing any any light. It's not seeing the light, so it's yeah. So it eventually has to catch up. But still, I would think there's still an advantage to have it. The majority of the of the surface cured in five seconds because then oh, it can absolutely. go on for further processing as as it naturally air cures uh, without that you're not touching the board you're not moving the board to a next process um until it's at least the majority of the surface is cured that's it i mean this is the, this is the thing with um with a, a solvent-based product you could and you want to get it fully cured uh, you could have a 10 meter oven um after the coating system and you now that's taken up floor space is costing money with the uv cure system it can be one meter long sorry i'm, I'm talking in european units here no oh, we can figure it out we're i think we're the last country standing that still uses uh, imperial but um which we got from you by the way so thank you uh, for giving us something that you quickly switched out of um my wife refuses to use metrics she still uses feet and inches yeah, so I have to know, convert. I have to convert everything. I have to convert it because my brain is just programmed in you know feet and inches and Fahrenheit and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the in a prior interview uh, you gave, uh, you talked about um, energy savings with LED curable, and, and I hadn't thought about that. Um, it takes a certain amount of energy to light up a bulb, you know, whether it's a UV bulb or a normal incandescent, you know. Um, uh, light bulb um i hadn't really thought about the energy savings but um your company and maybe others too i, I don't know but uh certainly you were promoting the idea of uv of led curable which you know obviously we all know in, in our civilian life that um a 60 watt um equivalent on a uh, an incandescent bulb that would run 60 watts is like two watts of LED power. So uh, clearly there's a savings there. Um, tell me a little bit more about the LED curable um, materials. Are they, f and how fundamentally different they are from a standard UV curable? Okay, so if we, if we just go back to um, the original cure methods, arc curing with an arc lamp um, or with a microwave system, uh, the arc lamps would have a limited lifespan, probably max of 600 hours. They would draw a lot of energy. Now, the beauty of the LED cure systems is that, as you've described, it uses low energy. But on top of that, we found out that uh, with the right UV cure activator within the product, we and with the uh, long wave UV light curing system, we actually get a deeper cure quicker than we do with arc. So not only are we saving energy with LEDs, we're saving energy on the amount of time the board is underneath the lights. The um, so a lot of the the base resins that we use for the UVs remain the same, but we have looked at new uh, resins to meet some of the requirements of the industry for flexibility. Uh, one of the things um, with regards to lead-free uh, soldering, your soldering is, as you know, at a much higher temperature, your flux is, is becoming vitrified. And what, what we found is that in, in, the, in the, uh, the, some coatings, when they're put over vitrified flux, and go through extreme thermal cycling, you're getting cracks because of a differential in coefficients of thermal expansion between the coating and the vitrified flux. 
So we've developed um, UV curable coatings now with additional flexibility that will survive that. They can survive 3000 thermal cycles on top of vitrified flux. Not that we promote that. We would rather see the flux cleaned off to give us a, a surface. Um, as I think I said earlier, if you're running a no clean process, you should really um, do process validation on that on that process. You've got to look at board handling. Are any of the operators handling the boards without gloved hands? Are they putting finger sorts on? What are, what are you leaving on there from previous processes that could, you know, even flux, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, will, if it's not fully activated, could be a contaminant, could cause a dendritic growth, could cause, um, you know, um, electrochemical migration. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things to consider. But the, UV, the, the LED curables, we are now very pleased with. And, um, you know, we've solved a few problems with them. One of the things I've wondered about is, um, particularly with bottom terminated components with large ground planes and things like that, is, you know, thermal uh, de uh, dissipation is a concern, you know, yeah. now more in the surface mount business than it was, in, you know, mm -hmm. back in the through-hole days. Um, does conformal coating have a positive or negative effect on thermal uh, dissipation? Okay, um, depending on the, the product, depending on the, you know, the components that are on there, um, conformal coatings never used to restrict or, um, or increase the thermal um, energy within the, within the product. But now, um, one of the concerns is with um, high, high voltage switching units, especially in electric vehicles, generating a lot of heat. Is that heat getting out? So this is something we're working on. And it's, it looks possible to get a conformal coating that will assist in that thermal release, that releases it through. I mean, a, in the past, it was never a problem because you didn't have that degree of, of um, energy of that heat generating electronics, but now you do. So yeah. it's something we are, we, we, we're looking at seriously. Um, okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot as we get near to uh, wrapping up. Um, you need to have a product that cannot fail. And if it fails, you die. So there's no pressure. Um, <laughs> and that product needs to be coated. And as I said, the rely, your life depends on the reliability of this product. And you can choose anything you want. Uh, obviously, you're going to choose Humaseal. I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't think you're going to go, yeah, yeah we're going to go with brand X. Um, but outside of that, uh, is there, a preferred coating material that you would choose knowing that the stakes are very, very high? I think in today's marketplace with, with the coatings that we now have, I would choose one of our UV, latest UV materials, um, not wanting to advertise, it's UV 550 and the, the, uh, it runs up to 150 degrees Celsius. It's got good flexibility. It survives um, a thousand cycles, uh, minus 140 to plus, sorry, minus 40 to plus 150. Um, get it the right way around. And um, yeah, that is what I would choose if, if, if I was, if it was a, a, a safety critical product, yes. Okay, excellent. Um, and finally, get out your crystal ball. What's the what's the future of of conformal coating materials and processes? Where do you see you know without divulging company secrets? Um, where do you see kind of generically the industry going, uh, both in terms of the consumer and the um, and the manufacturers of the materials? If we start with manufacturing. Um, there's more and more regulations being brought in 
uh, about the solvents that one can use. So our classic materials, especially the acrylics, which are still widely used, widely used uh, throughout the industry, um, they're going to they're going to disappear because eventually, and in fact, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, John Werriold, who was vice who was president of Humaseal in the old days when I first started, he and I had been saying, oh, you know. 10 years time, 20 years time, solvent-based materials are, are going to disappear. Here we are, 30 years later, and we're still selling tons of the product. But the regulations eventually are going to stop us. We've had to change solvents on quite a few of our solvent-based materials to meet the regulations. So I think the UV curables, 100% solids, is the future. And maybe the um, synthetic rubbers with the right solvents um, and both products with an addition to assist with sharp edge coverage because that really is that's where i think the industry is going to fall over especially with uh, condensation we've been involved with the national physics laboratory in the united kingdom who have developed a testing method for, for creating condensation or a micro layer of, of moisture. And uh, that's proving very interesting and we've got some very good results out of it from some of our products. So that's the future I think is 100% solids, sharp edge coverage and making, making things safer and more reliability, more reliable. And I'll add to that prediction that neither of us are going to uh, be out of a job anytime soon. Uh, the industry mm, is, yep. uh, well, yes, I mean, who knows these days, right? Crazy things these days. Um, but uh, in terms of the proliferation of electronics into harsher and harsher environments, the miniaturization of electronics to the point where um, there can't be even a dirty thought between components uh, without, without shorting them out. Um, and the increasing expectation of reliability. Um, auto, the auto industry is a great example. You know, I, I have a 1968 Ford Mustang that has one electronic um, component uh, or one electronic uh, accessory. Uh, everything else is electrical, and that is the AM radio. You know, so if 100% of my electronics failed in that Mustang, yeah. I would just not listen to the radio. Um, imagine if any electronics failed in a current automobile, particularly the upcoming um, autonomous vehicles. Um, it, it could have devastating consequences. And, uh, and I think even class one, IPC class one electronics, just consumable kind of quote unquote throwaway stuff, um, mm -hmm. still has an expectation to work. Even though nobody dies if it breaks, the company's reputation may die. The recall expenses might might be catastrophic. Yeah. So, um, and because electronics are going out into harsh environments now, because of miniaturization, all the things that we spent the last hour talking about, um, it, it is so easy for those parts to fail, and we have to go through extraordinary measures to keep those parts reliable, keep those those products reliable and functioning well, whether it's a safety concern or just a practical recall avoidance procedure, whatever the case yeah. may be. Uh, I don't I think mean, either of yeah. us are going to be out of a job anytime soon. At least our hopefully. industries won't. Quite. And hopefully the industry is going to get back to cleaning as well before coating. Oh, that's already okay. happened. That's, that's already mm -hmm. happened. The, the tide raises all boats and we're, we're one of the boats next to yours. So uh, cleaning has um, very quickly Come become back. mainstream not quite mainstream again, but very close to mainstream. And people are reluctant. They're trying everything else. You know, they're trying, you know, they're, they're hiring witch doctors and doing voodoo dances to avoid cleaning. But, but finally, you know, people realize that they, they need to be clean. Probably the same with coating. No one wants to code if they don't have to. Nope. You want to do as few processes as possible. And, and, uh, you know, if, if there's no other solution, then they coat. If there's no other yep. solution, then they clean. It's same same thing. If there's no other solution, then they test. You know, it's a, it's it's these are all value adds, but they just need to see the value 
that's it. I mean, the, the thing is, if 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 they cleaned and coped, their warranty claims would probably drop right off, as you say. You know, yeah. the returns, the recalls. Yeah. You know, it adds reliability. It yeah. it adds longevity to the to the boards and, and and to the life of the product. Sure, absolutely. And for those companies that uh, plan on uh, planned obsolescence, don't clean, don't coat. Right, just. Yeah. Uh, have a three-month fulfillment plan every every ninety days. Send another product out, and that, and that probably is a model for some companies. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's if that's understood up front. Uh, well, right. David Greenman, thank you so much for being my guest today. For my audience, um, if you would like to uh, get more information on uh, David and his uh, the, the company that he directs. Uh, I'll have that information in the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast on your favorite podcast app, just um, click on the show notes and you'll get contact information there. And if you're watching this on YouTube, somewhere down below here, it says show more, click on that button and you'll see the show notes there. Um, so David, thanks for all of your uh, expertise and thanks for filling me and my audience in on, uh, on the details and the technical uh, attributes and the practical attributes of conformal coding. I really appreciate your time. Mike, thank you very much for giving me the time uh, to talk with you and do this podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at PCBChat.com and Ascendo Reliability at Reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks also for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send questions and comments, episode suggestions, to Mike at MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, Click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Once again, thank you so much for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.